Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the PeaceWorks process, the uh, way in which we in the past have worked with perpetrators. But before we jump into that, I want to remind you once again of PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community, and it is your best next step. If you're benefiting from what you're hearing on the PeaceWorks podcast, then PeaceWorks University is where you need to find yourself. We have hundreds of hours of video-based content, homework assignments, past conference uh, video and audio, uh, our online Facebook community, we have uh, live Q&As once a month and so much more. And so, again, if you're benefiting from the content you're consuming here on the podcast, then PeaceWorks University is your best next step. Since we're going to be talking a little bit about working with individuals who are abusive from a biblical perspective, I think it would be important, too, to mention Men of Peace. Men of Peace, uh, the digital course, is available to anyone who wants to walk through the content that I've historically used with men who identify as abusive. You can find out more about Men of Peace at chrismoles.org under the um, uh, the coaching tab, or the courses tab, I should say, or you can go to menofpeace.org. So today's question is really going to take us, I think, a couple episodes uh, to effectively answer, and it's one that I honestly hesitated uh, to address, but I do think there is some validity to having the conversation, and hopefully it'll add some clarity and and not muddy the waters um, much more than, than I think they already are. And that question is, uh, as presented by one individual, I've actually answered this question uh, in several settings in the last couple of weeks, a live event, a text thread, and then today on the podcast in response to a people helper who asked, how is the Duluth model different from what you teach? And I think it's a healthy question because there is some confusion. I think there's been some ideas out there, concepts that I'm a, you know, the Duluth apologist or my job is to promote the Duluth model. And that's not really what I want to be. It's not the, the role that I want to take on. I, in full disclosure, uh, got my start in domestic abuse prevention and intervention uh, through a community corrections agency and worked in that agency for many, many years. And our initial training and um, what we used to get our license was the Duluth model, what's called creating a process of change for men. And uh, DAIP out of Duluth, Minnesota, uh, was the developer of that curriculum. I've also had some training in other models, uh, some forms of eMERGE and hybrid models that are out there. But certainly, you know, I guess it's true that I have been to DAIP um, and I've also been trained in the Duluth model. Uh, with that being said, I think what causes a lot of, of the confusion or concern is one, the philosophical and foundational natures of the Duluth model, and does that negate 
the value of, say, the power and control wheel, which a lot of experts and counselors and people helpers and coaches and even biblical counselors utilize, even if they don't utilize the Duluth model. So I thought, yeah, I could probably answer this and and maybe be of some help to some of my friends who are who are learning and growing and wanting to jump into this work by really distinguishing, you know, hey, is your approach different or are you simply taking Duluth and sprinkling Bible verses um, on top of it? I, I hope that's not the case. I hope we have a more robust or, or nuanced approach, biblical approach uh, to addressing men. I, I do also think it'd be worth mentioning I was teaching at our conference this week and a participant had asked me some questions, not about Duluth or Emerge, but about a, another system of thought uh, in therapy, counseling, care, you know, and, and I had said, you know, it's not for me. It's not something that I really would embrace. I, I don't necessarily see it as like completely, you know, outside of the realm of a biblical counselor, what this person was addressing. Um, but, you know, you're an adult, use discernment, pray about it. Uh, it's not for me, but, you know, it's not really my place to say yay or nay. And their response, I think, is what I want to mention, that they found it refreshing to encounter somebody who encouraged them to use discernment uh, when they came from a background where everything was kind of heavily regulated. So that's kind of been my approach from the beginning, at least for myself. And, you know, Lord, help me to understand, help me to apply biblical truth, help me to filter this as best I can through your word, help me to ask trustworthy people for help, help me to listen well you know, um, because I do think it is so easy uh, to, as they say, throw the baby out with the bathwater. And and I do believe that happens somewhat in our work because you have such a, oh, highly utilized tool like the power and control wheel, which was developed in conversations with 200 victims of domestic violence um, that will in many ways be negated uh, because of the work's connection to say critical theory, which is true. And uh, I do want to delve into that maybe a little bit in this episode. So I hope I'm, I'm not making it worse. I hope I'm actually going to do a fair job in comparing and contrasting. So uh, what are the differences? Uh, what are the differences between the work that you're attempting to do at PeaceWorks, the PeaceWorks process, Men of Peace, uh, and what you learned in the Duluth model? So I think there are some foundational differences uh, philosophical differences that probably should be stated at the outset. In fact, this was part of the text thread discussion that I was on recently. As some of my friends, uh, one of my friends in particular was asking, you know, is the Duluth model, does it have a, a history in critical theory? Critical theory um, has been a topic of discussion among many church denominations. I'm not going to get too far into the weeds on critical theory I have my thoughts, um, uh, my opposition to how incomplete I think the approach is, uh, but I also think in many ways it has become an evangelical boogeyman in recent days. Um, but I, I will say that it was interesting that several of my, my friends would say, well, no, I don't think so. However, you know, being somebody who was trained in the model, you know, I was able to say, yeah, actually... Yes, as a, at a philosophical or foundational level, the Duluth model historically has had ties to critical theory. In particular, 
the work of Paulo Freire, which um, is an educational, in which his educational model in uh, post-conflict Brazil was in many ways kind of the birth of some aspects of critical theory. Uh, the blending of Marxism and uh, educational philosophy uh, regarding oppressed and oppressors and um, some of the things that we see today in critical race theory or critical theory in general that many of our friends are very concerned about. And so I think it, you have to be honest and say, yes, you, you will in a you know, Duluth training spend the first portions of your time interacting with uh, pedagogy of the oppressed and the ideas of Paula Freire as you're dealing with educational philosophy. Now, some of you may, you know, hear that and go, holy cow, I didn't realize that it was that foundational. Um, if I could just pause, if you're still with me, if you're still listening to the podcast, if you haven't abandoned ship, I would say that if you lined up a hundred facilitators around the country and you said the name Paula Freire or pedagogy of the oppressed or something along those lines, the vast majority of them would say who? Because although it's introductory material to the primary course that you'll receive, uh, I just don't think it's central to the work that most facilitators do. Um, do the facilitators, most, for the most part, run into those groups having socialistic outcomes in their mind or Marxist agendas or critical theory? I would say no. In fact, I, I, will, I will say this. You know, my first exposure, my first training in the Duluth model was in uh, a police academy. So I want you to imagine a large classroom. There's about 150 potential facilitators in the classroom. 90-plus percent of them are law enforcement officers. If you're talking about critical theory of um, power structures and how anyone in power uh, is oppressive in an hour lecture, say that you're getting about an hour of the 30 hours maybe covering this topic, how many of those law enforcement officers do you think are engaging in that material? I can just tell you, not many. And, and I just think that's part of the dilemma and the need for discernment is I think you come in and, and there are approaches in which people want certain things to be true, uh, but that doesn't mean that practitioners are applying those certain things, if that makes, if that makes sense. And so I think that is the first distinction that, Yes, we can say that the Duluth model at the philosophical level has kind of a critical theory approach to it. Does that mean that PeaceWorks holds a critical theory approach? N not necessarily, not really. I guess I shouldn't even say not necessarily. I don't think that we do um, because our primary founder or thought leader is not Paulo Freire. It's Jesus, Jesus Christ. And so we're not promoting critical theory or any theory of oppression necessarily, we're promoting the good news. In fact, as you interact with PeaceWorks material or with Men of Peace, one of our goals is to effectively lead men uh, to the gospel, uh, the, what we call the provisional, positional, and practical aspects of the gospel, not necessarily to some self-awareness. 
And uh, I think that is one of the major differences. But I will say most facilitated groups within criminal corrections, within the Department of Justice, you would be hard-pressed to find um, probation officers or corrections officers spouting the same theories of, say, equality when their primary audience is captives in some form. If that makes sense, it is a very hard sell to say part of your prison rehabilitation is to do this group um, and there's no distinction or hierarchy in the room. I think everyone would somewhat understand that, that some of those theories are reformed and reframed um, depending upon the context. But in our work, in Men of Peace and Peace Works, we're really not looking for cultural equality. We're not really looking for understanding ways in which um, we have oppressed everyone or been oppressed by everyone, but we are looking at specific forms of accountability. In what ways have you fallen short of the standard that God has set in your relationships? In what ways have you harmed your wife using coercion, threat, control? In what ways have you created a climate and a culture of fear in your home. And it's like one of my mentors says um, in biblical counseling, you know, he listens to the individual's problems and then he says, you know, I think the problem's far worse than you realize, but the solution is far greater than you could ever imagine. When we step into a biblical framework, I think we can say, you know, the problem's a lot worse than you realize. You're not opposed to your wife. You're not opposed to your church. You're not opposed to your pastor. You're not misunderstood. You're at odds with a holy God. Your pride has put you in opposition to him. Your use of force, threat, coercion, and fear is contradictory to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is our foundational element at PeaceWorks. And so I do think that's one big distinction. Um, and it also informs kind of the next distinction because we are very similar. Most change groups or change philosophies when it comes to abuse work in the country are kind of built on the same premise that beliefs uh, drive behavior. And if you're going to see long-term change, reductions in recidivism if you're in the courts or healthy relationships if you're in a therapeutic environment, uh, you're going to have to see beliefs change. And I actually think we have enough biblical perspective to agree to a point with that notion, because I do think um, what we think about the world, about God, about ourselves is important. That's the great commandment, right? We, we're to love God. We're to love others as we love ourselves. If we have a, a, an improper view of who we are, right? If we think of ourselves too highly, uh, then we're in trouble. Pride will go before our fall if we don't view others appropriately, if we view God um, disproportionately. And so getting our perspective, our worldview straight is imperative to the work that we do. And so I think both groups there have um, a healthy direction. I think the distinction, if we're going to distinguish them, is that on the secular side, I, I don't think there's a lot of hope per se 
because we're often taught that this is an internal production through education. If we can educate people enough, then they will internally develop these beliefs on their own. And I think for us at PeaceWorks, we have a different philosophy. We are going to educate, but we don't want educational um, adherence. We want gospel transformation. And so we are going to educate. We are going to inform. We are going to call to repentance. We are going to promote salvation and sanctification because we want transformation, right? Transformation through salvation and subsequently through sanctification as we see people embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're not just wanting new beliefs, wanting a new heart. And so I do think there is a distinction um, between educating you on the harm that you've done, which we are happy to do at PeaceWorks, but also educating you on the greater need that you have in your relationship with Jesus and how that should transform the way in which you treat others. And you'll see this in our approach, something that um, I may cover in another episode, which is distinguishing between the approaches of, say, a traditional um, change model in the United States versus um, what we attempt to do in biblical counseling and in men of peace. So there is differences at the philosophical level, and understandably so. There's going to be. Um, there are beliefs at the regarding change. They are close. They are more closely related than we may at first glance think, but they are distinct. They are different because we have a source of change and transformation that's very specific, and uh, we want to draw people into the good news so that they can experience a new heart through salvation and sanctification. And in the process, um, the process is similar, although distinct as well. Uh, I think for the Duluth model, the the secret sauce for them is not the philosophy because it is often um, frankly rejected when it comes to working in criminal corrections. Um, it's not just the, um, the beliefs driving behavior, although that's important. Their primary process that has made them effective in the secular environment, I think, is what's called the CCR, or the Community Coordinated Response. Community-coordinated response is the idea of developing systems in which agencies are working together so that advocates are working with law enforcement, and law enforcement is working with group facilitators, and the group facilitators are working with prosecutors, and the community is engaged in a holistic approach to care for victims by confronting and holding perpetrators accountable. Uh, in some of the research that's been done, in particular by Ed Gondoff, this seems to be the indicator as to whether or not a group is going to see a reduction in recidivism is their involvement in the community-coordinated response, the CCR. Now, I would say there's similar practices in PeaceWorks, although they are a little bit different, because we talk about shepherding teams. Uh, we, do, we, too, believe that accountability is a big part of transformation. And we understand, or at least we believe we understand, that the heart of abuse is often highly self-deceived, willing to manipulate and deceive others, uh, prideful, um, not easily broken. And so it requires a multiplicity of individuals, uh, a multiple disciplinary approach 
to bring truth to the table through accountability, education, gospel-centered instruction, counseling, care, and, of course, advocacy for the victim. Shepherding teams are central to, the, to what we do. Are we talking about prosecutors and law enforcement officers? Not nor- normally, no, although if there is criminal activity, we, we do encourage the church to be good Romans 13 citizens and be part of the overall community-based team. But no, for us, we're talking about pastors, godly men and women counselors, biblical counselors who are working with victims and perpetrators. We're talking about group models like Men of Peace or others that are going to allow that individual to process what they're hearing in a group setting with other people, Uh, not a support group, but an accountability and education group where we're all working towards that pivot point of the gospel and regular meetings of the team so that we can evaluate progress and help in the process of discipleship. We often say that, you know, one of the detriments to the typical traditional church approach has been the lack of accountability, the acceptance of quick, um, unvetted, unvetted repentance, the encouragement to restore relationships too quickly without repentance and forgiveness, um, the lack of gospel intervention, uh, the quick acceptance of feigned contrition, the um, reminder that we need to go back to the Word of God, you know, that godly sorrow leads to repentance, but worldly sorrow leads to death. How are we evaluating repentance? Are we using those watts of uh, that, that Paul talks about? What earnestness, what zeal, what indignation? Are we looking for the lasting fruits of repentance, like Ephesians chapter 4, as individuals put off and put on as they continue to walk in repentance and forgiveness? So shepherding teams are, are one thing that we developed, I guess you would say. So if the question is, you know, what are the distinctions? What's the difference? I think there's a lot of differences. Philosophically, we have a very foundational difference because we're working from the heart of the gospel. I think even our beliefs and change are different because we, we do hold that there is truth and there's a standard that we must give men in order for them to experience transformation, and that is the gospel, biblical truth to guide them and direct them and, and disciple them. Uh, but the biggest similarity may be the need for teams. And while uh, a secular model may incorporate systems, governmental systems, Uh, We are instead looking at um, functional systems of the church, believing that the church should have multidiscipline teams, multiple voices, multiple touch points uh, in such a complex issue. And so we are not there just to respond. We're there to shepherd and guide. Some of us, Galatians 6 type of confrontational ministry, some of us, First uh, Thessalonians 5 type of comfort and care ministry, and some of us in a variety of other capacities of instruction and data gathering and comfort and hope. Um, some of us are more on the homework side and the day-to-day grind of things, and some of us are on the more apostolic type of administrative side of things. But having a team approach is one thing that I think I learned from all of those years in a secular environment that seems to fit hand in glove with what the local church has to offer. So what do I use and what do I not? And that's how we'll land the plane today. And then we'll, we'll cover some more of this, I think in a future episode, because I do believe it's important to talk a little bit about how Duluth model groups are run and then how 
you know, biblical counselors or men of peace facilitators have done this type of work in the past. So what do I use and what do I not? I, I will say I use the power and control wheel. I, I don't think it intrinsically contains anything adverse to the scriptures. Uh, it, to me, operates as an observational tool because of the way in which it was created in interviews with 200 victims of domestic violence. It has been a viable tool in a lot of people's toolbox to help identify abuse because those eight um, eight or nine themes and um, approaches seem to resonate with victims uh, more so than a traditional model like the cycle of, of abuse. So there seems to be a connection point. It also helps us identify patterns, which is something that we believe exists in abusive relationships. And so I, I continue to use the wheel um, as an observational tool. Uh, I would guess I use a CCR. And I certainly advise churches when there's criminal activity to avail themselves to the community-coordinated response. If they can be part of team meetings or they can at least get updates from the CCR, that's a huge benefit to the church and its ecclesiological discipline itself. So I I do ascribe to the CCR, and I think we have translated that um, into a more biblical approach in shepherding teams and utilizing multiple team members. Uh, what do I not uh, I, I don't think you'll find critical theory being a, a vital part of what we do. Um, we, I, and I say I don't think because there's somebody who could probably go through it and say I would consider this critical theory, but I think the majority of our work is gospel centered. In fact, each of our modules in Men of Peace and every Men of Peace group group that I've led or biblical counselor that I've tried to disciple in this, our primary text is the Scripture. Our primary goal is redemption. Our primary objective is repentance, um, and then we've utilized church discipline when that doesn't take place. And so we attempt to be biblical in our approach. Um, I'm also, I do not bring to the table kind of the open option approach that is uh, akin to non-directive approaches to counseling that you might find in some groups. I do lead the witness, and I'll actually say that when I train people. Uh, I lead the witness. I I view us as on a raging river, kind of a whitewater river, and I'm the guide. Everybody in the boat's working. We're all working together in a group model to get downstream, but the river's going to take us where it's going to take us. My job is to read the river and lead us to safe places in our discussion, uh, gospel-centered places. And so uh, I don't leave the conclusions up to the guys. I don't think they're going to internally, automatically develop godly conclusions, especially uh, considering that many of the men will not have the Holy Spirit because they are pre-salvific at this point. So uh, we do lead the witness, so we don't leave it as an open argument. We have a very strict agenda, which would be something that I think we learned from from Paul Tripp. So I think we'll end it there. I, I hope this was clear. Some of you are probably thinking, wow, Chris, this is clear as mud. There are distinctions that uh, I hope this has helped add some clarity. I will come back in our next episode, I think next week, and just kind of compare the two processes openly. So you can kind of see what a a typical uh, secular model may look like versus what a typical biblical counseling model um, that we promote may look like. Okay, so uh, again, there's more discussion to be had here, but I hope that adds some clarity on what we do and why we do it here at PeaceWorks. All right, guys, until next time.
God bless.